This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. It's a great privilege for me to be sitting here with Jeremy Marshall. Now, what was it that you used to do? My last job was I was uh, chief executive of Seahorn and Co., which is a very old family-owned bank in Fleet Street. And we are sitting here in Kent. Have you always lived in Kent? No, I was born in Hertfordshire and uh, worked all over the world, actually, with, with Credit Suisse, which is who I worked for before before Seahorn and Co. Mm-hmm. I've been in Kent the last sort of 15, 20 years, go to St. Nicholas, Seven Oaks, which is our excellent very good local church mm, mm. and uh, yeah I love Kent even though but I'm not from Kent no I'm mm. from north of London originally not from the garden of England originally no that's right yeah yeah <laughs> which countries have you lived in I've uh, lived in Switzerland France and the US oh wow yeah and did you pick up French or German uh, yeah but I've forgotten it all <laughs> <laughs> and where did you live in the States uh, in New York oh, or wow. just outside New York and yeah, commuted in to work on Wall Street. Uh, you lived in uh, Darien, Connecticut, which is a sort of commuter town, probably a bit like Seven Oaks, just outside mm. New York. Mm-hmm. So you knew, for how long were you in New York City? About six years, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, with children, married? Yeah, there are, um, we've got three children, uh, married to Jeanette. Um, our daughter just got married to an American, but we don't hold it against him. <laughs> Which is quite appropriate because Naomi would just love being in America and always had this hankering to um, go back to America. And she did a master's there. And then we've got two boys, Nat and Sam. Nat just graduated working in the technology startup, and Sam's uh, still at university, mm. studying supposedly geography, but it seems to be mainly cricket. <laughs> <laughs> William Taylor told me he, he studied geography. He, says, he said, fine degree, lots of colouring in. Yeah, that's he right, said- yeah. <laughs> I've heard all those jokes, yeah. As a historian, I like to try and bust his chops. <laughs> a historian? You studied uh, history I studied at history, yeah, yeah. at the university. Um, yeah, pretty eclectic. Then I did the English Civil War, French Revolution, Russian Revolution, all the kind of bloodthirsty you know, overthrows. So I've no, I've no relevance to now where everything is calm and <laughs> government is totally in control of everything. Oh, fantastic, yes. And uh, did you come from, you came from a believing family? Or? Yeah, my father was a, an, an unusual character. Um, he was for nearly 50 years a pastor in the same town in Hemel Hempstead in Hertfordshire. He felt that's what God wanted him to do. In fact, he was called to the ministry before he was a Christian, which is a rather unusual thing. So he felt there was a God, and God wanted him to be a minister, but he was so opposed to that, he'd rather go to hell than be a minister. Wow, <laughs> gracious me. And then what happened to him? So he became a Christian. Um, he met my mother at Oxford, and then he went to Hemel Hempstead and was there for 50 years. But he was an unusual man, a man of very strong convictions. He used to stand every other Saturday all of that time in Hemel Hempstead Marketplace, preaching the good word in the open air. As children, we were sort of required to be rent a crowd to stand oh, there. Wow. Sometimes it used to get pretty hairy. People used to try and push him off the platform and uh, also used to throw rotten fruit at him, including the stallholders. But over time, he became an institution and um, the stallholders actually became very kind of proprietary towards him and would try and defend him if people attacked him. Gracious. So dad would have to sort of say to some burly stallholder covered with tattoos, no, please don't beat this guy up. You know? And uh, that was just the way, he, that was the way he was. He was a man of yeah, indomitable, didn't fear anyone, just did whatever he thought he should do. Mm. And um, one of the things that he, he used to do every summer was he would pack all of his young children and my mother 
and um, I've got three younger sisters. So this started when I was about nine or ten, and my younger sister was one. And we go off Bible smuggling behind the uh, Iron Curtain, Gracious. especially to the USSR. I assume, yeah. Ben, that's what most of your listeners did on their summer holidays, right? <laughs> no, I don't, I've never even been to the USSR. I once asked Dr. Ken Brunell of ELT Baptist Church, what's it like going on a long drive with your family? Uh, have you ever done it? Because I, I wanted to take the family to the south of France in the car. Uh, and he said, well, uh, Jeremy Marshall's father used to take him to, to St. Petersburg in his car. Yeah, that's right. I thought, yeah. gracious. Yeah, it was quite an adventure. I mean, my father would go off for like five weeks. In um, The cars were terrible. They were always breaking down. We had an Austin 1800, which even by the standards of British Leyland was a terrible product. And um, a trailer, which was full of... Bibles and other books and yeah he just he just went off so yeah the, the distances were quite enormous you realize why Hitler had such a hot and Napoleon had a hard time invading Russia because it's just so darn big wow and uh, you just drive for hours and hours and hours across the steppe and nothing really nothing really happened so yeah it was quite an adventure we were all jammed into this car yeah so I wouldn't say that all the time was equally sanctified <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. You, three sisters, yeah, my your mother, parents. My parents, yeah. And mm. every kind of conceivable literature and stuff. And that also used to cause endless delays when you got to the... I mean, different countries in behind the Warsaw Pact had different levels of kind of persecution of Christians or, or um, fear of bringing in Christian literature. So some, like Yugoslavia, were fairly relaxed. Others, like Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, and especially the USSR, were very strict. Mm. So sometimes it took us eight or nine hours to cross the Russian border. Good gracious. Yeah, and um, Dad used to uh, hide the Bibles in all sorts of odd places. So once, um, trying to be helpful for once, um, I decided to take down the, um, the... There were sort of deck chairs on, on a, on a um, you know, a roof rack secured with kind of crampons. And as I took them off, there was like a kind of avalanche of Russian <laughs> Bibles cascading on top of me no. to my father. This was in a campsite in Hungary, to oh my father's gosh. embarrassment. Oh, yeah. my word. So at the border, Dad also always inculcated unto us the principle of never tell a lie. So they'd say, have you got any Russian Bibles? And he'd say, yes. And under the Soviet constitution, I'm allowed to bring them in for personal use. So they would say, okay, well, how many have you got then? So he'd say, 50. And they'd say, well, that's too many for personal use. So then he'd haggle with them. Sometimes they'd also say, well, you know, you, for example, I remember once one of my sisters um, who was very young, maybe three or four, they said, well, she can't read. And Dad said, oh, yes, she can, and gave her a Bible. And she just opened it up and started reading from the Bible, to which the horrified border guard said, no, no, stop, that's fine, okay. okay. You made your point. So um, Dad always <laughs> thought that probably some of the Bibles got sold on the black market uh, in a way by the border guards because there were two mm. really valuable things that people in the Soviet Union wanted. They wanted uh, Levi jeans and Bibles. Really? What also, Ben, I think people tend to forget is that they were the enemy. I mean, when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, people were afraid of nuclear war, of being exterminated by the Russians. Mm. And uh, there was this real fear and, and hatred of the Russians and uh, it strikes to me that's not dissimilar in a way maybe to how some people might feel about Muslims today. Mm, mm. No, these are human beings with the same fears, hopes as, as the rest of us. Mm. And one parallel I'll draw between Russians in the 60s and 70s I met and, and Muslims now is that they don't really know what the Christian message is. Well, this is it. So, and if we, if we get the chance to share it with them, 
um, it, it, it transforms people. Mm, God's mm. word is transformative. Mm. So these are not inherently evil people who are bent on destroying us. They're, they're like us. Mm. They're, they're poor lost people who need to hear the good news about the Lord Jesus. Amen, amen. And if we love them and care for them, also, as, as we think now about Muslims, if we think of, of the Soviet Union, look, look what God did. Yes, amen. So, the whole thing came crashing down under its own contradictions, and there was a fantastic gospel opportunity. Mm. I, mean, I, I go a lot to the Ukraine, um, and I've got a great friend, a man called David Ide, who's been there nearly a hundred times. He goes to the front line of the war between the Ukrainians wow. and the Russian separatists. And David says, there's never been such a movement of God in Europe as, as is happening in Ukraine. Good you know, in in um, 2017, there were one million people in the central square of Kiev celebrating the Reformation. Wow, which, by yes. the way, hardly happened in, in yes. Ukraine anyway. Yes, yes. Can you imagine that in Trafalgar Square, a million yes, people? Yes, yes, yeah. So God's doing an amazing work in Ukraine. Wow, and um, yet that was a country where, when I was there, the pastors were in the Gulag Archipelago. God can mm -hmm. do what he likes. Amen, amen. In, in our lifetime, we can see incredible things happen, and we can do the, see the same things with our Muslim friends. Amen, amen. What we need to do, though, is to love them, get to know them, befriend them, and share the good news about the Lord Jesus with them. Yes, this is it. One thing that we find, uh, we're trying to plant a church among Bangladeshi Muslims ourselves, is uh, it's, they are concerned, they're, they're very afraid, because their God is very closely equated with fatalism. And uh, when terrible things happen to them, well, that's the will of Allah, you see. And it's an awesome and a frightening thing for them. But interestingly, of course, the, the God in whom we believe is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who dies to save. And a Christian reads providence through the lens of the cross. And we therefore, um, we show them the gospel as much as we tell them. No, and also the way that the ordinary Christians in Russia and other countries responded to persecution. It, it's so striking. So I've got a friend who I, I'm going to see next week actually in Serbia, um, who I've been seeing for nearly 50 years with my father. It's a man called Simo Ralevich. And he's been subject to every kind of persecution you can you can imagine he had to uh, he had to flee from Kosovo as a Serb in in during the sort of you know NATO period, and um, if we take uh, at, you know um, both Al Albania itself and also Kosovo, which is ninety percent Muslim, when Simo was there in the seventies, we used to visit him with my father. There was but one evangelical church there, mm. and um, he just started very simply by just sharing God's word in the Albanian language with his Albanian friends. Um, and um, he used to go on a motorbike with his brothers and they would just go around distributing stuff in Albanian language, the, the Bible, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, they did that one day. And then um, when they came back to their home, every square inch of the fence was lined with people saying, please give us this, um, please give us this, this book. Mm. Now, 30, 40, 50 years later, there are masses and masses of Albanian evangelicals. Mm. And um, it just shows God breaks down the natural enmity between <laughs> Serb and Albanians. My goodness. And he does it often, I find, using just the supernatural power of, of his word. Mm. And Simo wow. was in jail many times. Um, you know, sometimes when you, when you meet these ordinary Christians subject to persecution, Ben, it's like being in Acts, right? We think of Acts, that's a long time ago. No, there are things going on. And God can use our suffering and can use persecution for his glory. So just to tell you one story, Simo was in jail and his wife was seriously ill. So um, he, uh, he asked the governor, can I be let out for 24 hours? No. 
And because he'd been so kindly to all these criminals in jail, they were all very upset for him because they said, you know, this isn't a criminal, this is just a pastor who's preaching the word. So wow. one of them went to the governor and said, if you don't release this man, when I'm out, I will kill you. <laughs> so the governor <laughs> had second thoughts and said, OK, you can go just for 24 hours. So Simo was let out. Now, does this sound like a church a story from Acts? So he went to his house where the church also met and he knocked on the door and they were having a prayer meeting. When they opened the door, they were pretty surprised wow. to see him there, just like, you know, the servant girl um, yes. uh, in, uh, with Peter. Yeah, Rhoda, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she didn't ask, they didn't say, no, it's his angel. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary thing. Now, so your father, that sounds like a story you were saying about your father. The, 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 the grocers were trying to defend him. How did your father come? Did he, what kind of a church was he involved in when he was ministering in, uh, in Hemel Hempstead? It was a congregational church. Mm. Then he sort of, uh, I guess, did a management buyout when the United Reformed Church was formed. So... Mm. Um, yeah, he, he just went off on his own. It's still right. it's still going now. Uh -huh. So he was a gospel man at a time when there was a great challenge to the gospel in his own time. Yeah, I think we. Ben, one thing I really want to say to your listeners is, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. I think we, we, we often feel that things are going from bad to worse in, in England or in the West. Yeah, some things are, but some things are doing much better. Mm. When my father was studying theology in the early 50s, there, there were basically very few evangelical books, very few evangelical scholars. There mm. was just the beginning of an interest in the Puritans and Lloyd-Jones, who was a friend of my father, and the Banner of Truth was just being started. But it was really laughable compared to now. And now, mm. look, there are... You know, there are thousands and thousands of evangelical commentaries and books pouring mm. out of mm. presses, and that's in, that's in my lifetime. Mm. So God can do miracles. God can do amazing things. Mm. Mm. I think one of the things that occurs to me, I'm, I'm not that old, I'm 55, right? So in my lifetime, so some things have improved tremendously, like the amount of reformed and evangelical teaching. Mm. But in some ways, the sort of Christendom aspect of the UK has gone down tremendously. Oh, yes. There was a sort of, people assumed they were Christians in the 60s, even though they, they weren't. Um, and there was also a big fringe in the church. Lots and lots of people would somehow be associated with the church, even though they weren't born again. Mm. Um, and people's heart back to Billy Graham wasn't that amazing. But uh, Rico Tysus pointed out, 90% of the people who came forward at Billy Graham rallies and Harringay and Wembley were already in churches. Wow. So the situation has changed a lot in our lifetime. And... Um, yeah, the, the, the sort of, we're at the end of the Constantine age, I would say. Constantine mm. the Great, mm. who's actually from Nishan, born in Nishan, Serbia, which is where I'm going next week. <laughs> he was the first supposedly Christian emperor, and that was in about 330. Mm. And in, the, in England, more or less unbroken, a couple of centuries of paganism, but more or less unbroken, we have that long period then where the church has been in power one way or another. Mm. And that's, that's going away. So we're, we're back to the situation like the first few centuries, or indeed like those people in, in the USSR, mm. I think it's really important that we don't then think, oh, woe is me, and we should just retreat into the hills. I'm not at all a fan of the Benedict Option, mm. which mm. I think is a misguided book. Mm. No, this is a fantastic gospel opportunity. Uh -huh. And um, I think what we need to do is to... Uh, I'm, I'm keen on cricket, so get get on the front foot. <laughs> yeah, and um, start playing a few shots, if you like. Well, uh -huh. What does that mean in gospel terms? It means going out to people. Mm -hmm. We can't expect that people will be in church because mm -hmm. they're not. Mm -hmm. But actually, I find, and as you know, I'm a big fan of uh, the word one-to-one -one and sharing our faith using the gospels. When I go and talk to people, most people are not against Christianity at all. They're just not really, never really thought about it. Uh -huh. They have no idea at right. all what the right. Christian message is. Uh -huh. 
if they have even a vague idea, they think it's moralism, mm. doing good. I never did anyone any wrong. When you mm. explain, no, it's a gift. It's about knowing, yes. believing in the Lord Jesus. They're they're, they're often transfixed. Yes. And, and um, does everyone become a Christian? No, of course not. But we have a the idea that somehow God's word has lost its power. Mm. No, I mean, yes. that's that, that's blasphemy, isn't it? Amen. Absolutely not. Yes, so right. we we need to we need to recover confidence in God's word. Not just in preaching, right? Mm-hmm. I'm all in favour of good preaching. God bless Dick, Lucas, and Proclamation Trust. But every Christian can share their personal faith, and especially, I think it's most powerful when we do it using one of the Gospels. Yes, 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 yes. We're actually, showing people Jesus, the person, yeah, exactly. and His words. Yes. As, as fast, I had the opportunity to speak to um, uh, Melvin Bragg on uh, a radio show the other day, and he was fascinated by the person of William Tyndale. Uh, who is someone who, uh, whose influence on the, the language is considered to be greater than the influence of Shakespeare by the professor of English at UCL. I mean, he's, but it was a delight to be able to point out to, to uh, Lord Bragg that uh, really what drove Tinder was not a fascination for innovation with linguistics, but it was the gospel, was the gospel. He wanted the ploughboy to get it. He wanted the ploughboy to be nourished in their soul with the gospel of Jesus. And you always find these greats or they're celebrated by people who might not welcome them now because they were such radicals. Now, uh, from what you're saying here, your dad was a conservative Bible guy who was on the front foot. Now, uh, growing up in his home, did you respond to the gospel as a child or later in life? I used to drive my father around the bend. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I used to tell him that he's the most boring preacher I've ever heard and the Bible's full of rubbish Mm -hmm. and uh, why did I have to go to church? Um, And where I would give my father high marks which I think is something that we can all learn from today is, although he demanded, yeah, he demanded that I came to church three times on Sunday, okay, which is maybe a bit excessive, but anyway, he completely was open to questions and, and indeed more than that, argument. Mm. So I think with our young people today, we've got to allow them to ask questions and debate. And my father was great at that. You could argue about absolutely anything. And um, he didn't mind at all on any topic, mm-hmm. including I don't think this or I don't think that about, about the, the Bible. And he, he just loved to engage in that. And right. as a child, you felt that you were being treated then as an equal somehow. You mm-hmm. had to respect the law, right? But you could, you could say what you like. And I believe the Christian faith is rational and reasonable. Mm. And actually, when you defend it and you, you argue the toss, that's how you persuade people. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes with our young people in, in church, we're, we're afraid of debate. Uh-huh. We're afraid of discussion. But no, let, let them ask anything they like. Yes. And um, you, know, there's, you probably know the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. right? They do this excellent thing called Reboot, where they have yeah, thousands of young people together and they address head-on the questions that people ask. Like, is God homophobic? Mm. Are Christians racist? Is a Christian sexist? Yeah. Has science disproved God? How can a loving God allow suffering and so on? Mm. And people want to hear those questions. And those are the questions that, as Christian parents, we should be allowing our teenagers yes. yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. ask and discuss. Yes. So when was it that you made a profession of faith yourself? Well, Ben, it was over a period of time. Right. And I think that's a fairly common thing. I couldn't put my finger on a particular day. Mm. I think um, the reason I became a Christian was that I realized it was true. Mm. And I think that's what young people are looking for. Right? Amen. All of us indeed are looking for truth. 
and to realize that yeah Jesus did really rise from the dead mm. and um, you know 40 50 years later that's the same question is it true did mm. Jesus really rise from the dead mm. I'm 100% convinced that he did. Oh, bless God it's wonderful and so you're not presently working for uh, Hall Bank. Um, you're traveling somewhat. How is it that you stopped working for the bank? And so yeah, so about six years ago, I got cancer. I noticed a small lump on my ribs, like a pea, and um, went to the Marsden eventually, and they said it's a rare type of cancer, sarcoma, but it should be, should be treatable. So I went through all kinds of treatment, radiotherapy, and then uh, for about two years or more was sort of you know, all clear. I went back for checkups, but then three and a half years ago, uh, I was at a friend's house, I went to adjust my collar and um, I felt a massive lump on my neck, on my collarbone, much larger than the pea-sized one before, like a golf ball. And uh, I went back to the Marsden and um, yeah, after running tests they told me, uh, look, we're really sorry but yeah, you've got tumours everywhere, we can't cure you, they're too large, they're too difficult to operate on. And then of course the next question you ask is, well, how long have I got? And uh, the answer was 18 months. Well. As you can see, Ben, that was wrong because I'm still alive. Mm. But I've just had the most amazing Christian experience since then. I mean, it's been really difficult. It's not, you know, and I don't want to make light of it. Cancer is horrible and, and having to deal with it with your family is particularly difficult. But I've never, I've just, God just, God can use our suffering for his glory in one way or another. And I just love to go around in the time left and just tell people about Jesus. And um, I've, you know, just in the last few days, I've spoken more or less every day to groups of people about something about, you know, how can a loving God allow suffering or, you know, just tell people my story. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's just such, it's such a privilege. And mm. uh, I just, I love, for example, to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm -hmm. who well known to you. Mm. And um, I love Bonhoeffer's quote, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer, for those of your listeners who don't know him, he was a German pastor who very courageously stood up against uh, the Nazis and as a result was put into a concentration camp by, um, and was executed actually by Hitler two weeks before the war's end. And um, he smuggled out of jail uh, a little piece of paper uh, just before he died. On it was written, only a suffering God can help us. Hmm. Right, only a suffering God can help us. And that that is so powerful because let's face it, we all suffer one way or another because we all face death, right? Yes. You know that. Yes. So the Christian message of hope in the face of death and a God who's not an impassive remote God. Um, Schaefer, who I love, by the way, used to talk about the infinite personal God, right? So I think sometimes the evangelicals, we major on the infinite God and God is infinite and, and in, in a sense, that sense incomprehensible, but he's also a personal God. And the thing that I think is so comforting in suffering is that God didn't leave us in the mess that we're Amen. in, partly a mess that we've created because of our own sin. And you know, we're, we're directly responsible, aren't we, for the, for the mess the world is in. No, he, he came himself. And mm. because Jesus is fully human and fully God, the Lord could experience and did experience suffering. Yes. And what I like to share with people when I talk evangelistically is this, that I have no choice over suffering. I wish I did. I mean, I, I've been through... 24 different chemotherapy treatments, about 24. a dozen operations. You know, If you read about a hospital crisis, I'm personally responsible. I've also had major problems with my eyes. I was uh, blind for a while. I had detached retinas in both eyes Gosh. and, and, and. But the Lord went through suffering and he didn't have to. Mm. I don't have a choice, right? I'm blessed that I've got great 
uh, oncologists and surgeons at the Marsdens and, and St Thomas's, but I have no choice. But the Lord had a choice, right? And I often like to think of Gethsemane. You know, he's there praying in agony. And then he, he looks up and he would have been able to see the guards, the, the Roman soldiers and the temple guards coming to arrest him, right? Because the torches would have gone down the Kidron Valley and up the other side. But no, he waited and he waited and he knew what was coming and he suffered and he suffered. Why did he suffer? Because he loved us. Mm. When you tell non-Christians this, I think it's really powerful. Mm. And I think people, in a way, love to hear that. And if we can't do anything else, with our friends, let's tell them about Jesus. Amen. Let's tell them what he's like. I, I love to tell them about his power and about his compassion. Mm. Sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional then, but mm. yeah, the, um, which won't do at all. But um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's to me the two wonderful characteristics of the Lord are his compassion. I think of the widow of Nain, right? He says, mm. what does he say to the widow? He says, don't cry. Mm -hmm. So God wow. sees us in our suffering. He sees us crying. He sees us upset and grieving, especially in the face of death, because her son has just died. It's in Luke's gospel. And he says, don't cry. Mm. He also does something very odd. He touches the bier that the dead body is being carried on, which was a very strange thing to do for a Jewish rabbi, because that would make you ritually unclean. So there we are. We're unclean. We're impure. We're screwed up. We're broken with God and God comes down and he touches us. Mm. But then he does something amazing, right? He raises the boy from the dead, also mm. thus prefiguring his own resurrection. Mm. Now, you know, sometimes people then say, well, does that mean God's going to, you know, rescue you and heal you? No, I don't know. That's up to him. But mm. the more important offer, which I love to tell people, is not that the first death, which we must all go through, but that God offers us a way out of the second death, which is actually much worse, which mm. is separation from him. Amen. And that by Jesus' suffering and, and his death, he opens that way back back to God. And that's good news, and that's also hope. One thing, Ben, I think we've got a massive, we've got a big hope deficit, right, in, in mm. our country. Mm. You look at Brexit, it's such, no, it's such a mess. And um, I love listening to John Lennox. I don't know if you've seen oh, his yes. book, Have No Fear, mm -hmm. which I recommend very highly. It just mm -hmm. came out. And um, Lennox tells the following story. He's on a train coming back from Cambridge and he's reading his Bible and opposite him is someone who he sort of vaguely rec recognises who's a professor of science at Cambridge and the guy sort of recognises him. So the guy leans forward, he says, it's, it's Professor Lennox, isn't it? And he says, yes, yes, and they introduce each other and then the, the, the man says, so what are you reading? He says, I'm reading the Bible. The man laughs, the Bible, why do you want to read that? And uh, Lennox says, oh, I love it because it gives me hope. And... Um, Lennox then says to the, the professor, um, do, do you have hope? And the man says, oh, yes, I, I hope everything turns out for good. Ho, 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 makes a joke of it. And Lennox looks at him and says, no, no, I don't mean that. I mean, do you have any personal hope? And the man looks him in the eyes and says, none, none whatsoever. <sighs> so that's the situation our friends are in. Mm. We have no hope, mm. no mm. hope, mm. because death is waiting for us all. But mm. We have a wonderful thing as Christians. We have hope. Hope both in this life and in the life to come, and, and above all, hope of being made right with God and coming back to God, mm. and coming back to you know uh, sharing the gospel with our Muslim friends and our atheist friends and our agnostic friends. Mm. It's an amazing privilege to do that. So it I is. feel a it is. kind of if there's one verse, Ben, that's kind of burns into my mind, it's this: we must work while it's day, oh. because the night comes when no one can work. Mm. So what's what's the night's death? So heaven will be amazing, be wonderful, we'll see the Lord face to face, but it'll be too late to share, too late to, to share the good news about Jesus. So mm -hmm. let's press on and do it now. That's mm -hmm. my message. Oh, bless God. It was absolutely wonderful to have this time 
with you, Jeremy, and to be sharing your perspective, a perspective, it seems, learned from a text, from an example about a glorious, effective and worthy Christ. It's fantastic to, to talk with you and have this time with you. And thank you. And also, um, thank you for, I think I've heard of many organizations which have been grateful for your insight in the Christian world. I find you introducing people and find that there are all kinds of little initiatives which have seen you're turning a sail which brings the wind better. So uh, we thank you for what you're doing in the church and uh, pray that God gives you time to continue to, to do these things and grace in your family. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.